Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. This is Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here with Tina Spring. And as per usual, we got on Skype today and went, okay, what do you want to talk about? And Tina, instead of me going, I don't know, what do you want to talk about? And Tina going, oh, I don't know, what do you want to talk about? Tina said, I've got a topic. So I was quite excited by that. And so um, what she was talking about was how do you help your dog learn to do things that you have taught them to do or perform things you have taught them to do in uh, at home or in a class in a more realistic life-like situation without either teaching them something you don't want to teach them or pushing them over the threshold so they can't possibly learn what you want them to learn at the time. So I know that sounds kind of like um, trainer talk, so we're going to break that down for you. But let me just give you a quick example, and then I'm going to let Tina run with the whole thing. So, uh, for example... When I'm working on come, or a technical term amongst trainers is recall, but it's basically get over here, dog. When I'm working on come with my dogs, we don't start in the middle of a wide open field that's populated by bunnies and squirrels and lots of and deer poop and all kinds of wonderful distractions. When I start working on come with my dog, it's in a much more controlled environment, and it's generally inside, and I will see my dog trotting towards me, and I'll say, oh, Zuzu, come! As she's running towards me or coming towards me, she gets to me, and it's a little party. Oh, what a good girl! And we have a little treat. So I begin to reward her as she begins to make these decisions to come to me. So if every time she comes to me, she's rewarded in some way, shape, or form, she's going to come to me a lot more often. And every time I see her coming towards me, I use her recall word, which in this particular case is come. You can use here, you can use whatever you want, but I happen to use come. So then we practice. So maybe she's sitting down in another room and I'm in the kitchen and I might try, oh, Zuzu, come! And she comes trotting over because this word in the house means if I go find mom, good things are going to happen to me. So I begin to make it a little bit harder in the house. And then maybe I'll go outside into our backyard, which is fenced in. And she'll trot away from me about six feet, and I'll say, oh, Zuzu, and she'll look at me, and I'll say, oh, come, and she comes running over to me. I don't wait until she's way over on the other side of the, of the yard where the bunnies used to be to try and call her the first time. I add these distractions in slowly, and rewarding her well, especially as the distractions or the situation gets more difficult, I give her a better reward because it's harder to come to mom outside because I know that the bunnies were over in that northeast corner, mom, and I'd like to go find out if they're still there. When she does come to me, she gets a really great reward. So you add in these real-life scenarios in manageable chunks, rewarding really well for doing perhaps what seems like a routine behavior, but under a more difficult circumstances. So that's just kind of one example of come. And the other thing is, is understand what your dog can, not only what they, you think they can do, but what can't they do? One of the big mistakes I find with come is that owners will ask their dogs to come when they know, they'll tell me, oh, there's, she'll never come. Or there's a 99% chance my dog will never come. 
then why are you asking the dog to do something that he's not prepared to do? So what this is all about is if we want to teach our dogs to be really reliable with whatever behavior it is we're teaching them, how do we do that? How do we build in that reliability so that we don't ask our dogs to do more than what they can do under any given circumstance, but add in more complicated environmental factors, and also to guarantee that we're, we're teaching what we want to teach. Because maybe, as Tina had, as she'll probably use the scatter kibble example, you want to make sure that what you're teaching the dog is what you want it to learn, which is I scatter the kibble, you go over and I release you to go and you go and look at it. Instead of teaching the dog, wait a minute, scatter kibble must mean there's something I'm not supposed to look at, so I want to go and look for it. So that's sort of the essence is how do you use thresholds? How do you not go over threshold? How do you teach your dog to understand what's expected in more realistic environments? So there you go, Tina. That's your setup. Well, that was an excellent set of examples. So I was talking to a client this morning in South Carolina. A big shout out to Meredith and her family. And she's making extraordinary progress with a dog who has been leash reactive with other dogs. Uh, She also has some dog reactivity when she's in the car, but only when they're going slow, not when they're going quickly. Maybe when they're going slow, the dog notices things more. That may be one thing. But also when they're going quickly, maybe there's a little bit of upset tummy, and I'm a lot more focused on my tummy than I am on what's going by the window. Uh, Maybe. She doesn't seem to have any car sickness. I think probably it's, Something we saw um, with my parents showing dogs, right? When you start getting to surface streets, they're like, hey, where are we going? So they just, in my experience, are much more aware of the environment than when you're on the interstate. So Sweet Piper has has a really good um, auto check-in with her handler now and a, a lot more impulse control. And we've stopped kind of the tight leash and some of the bad habits that that we were in just trying to um, control the dog the way, you know, most of us do when the dog is doing something that we're uncomfortable with or, or we don't want them to repeat. So she had worked with a local trainer. They had done a really good job. Now it was they needed the next layer of support. So that's why she called me in. So I taught her a couple of exercises and said, I want you to work on those. And then when you hit this benchmark, schedule the next appointment and we'll... Um, we'll go from there. So today was that follow-up appointment. So I taught her a couple of new exercises, and then we talked about how to get deeper into the exercises she was already doing. So Piper has gone from a dog who could not take food outside to now a dog who can take food outside, which was huge. The dog is went from being over threshold just from being outside to being under threshold outside. We can tell that because she gently and kindly is taking treats of a variety of different um, orders of magnitude, right? Chicken versus pork versus cheese versus kibble. Uh, And she also uh, just last week got to the point that when they went outside, she would pick up a stick and lay down and chew on the stick and play with it. So again, we have a different layer of relaxation. The The dog's not falling asleep in the sun, but she can chew on a stick and hang out. And that's pretty darn relaxed, right? Like you have to have a lot of bandwidth to be able to play. So her freak out tube is not full. She is not over threshold. She is much more relaxed. 
So Meredith's like, okay, what do we do next? Because it is different doing the exercises in your house, in your yard, in the immediate area around your home versus kind of real life, right? Where there are kids on bikes and there's dogs and there's this and there's that. And suddenly, like in a perfect world, it would go a really slow adjustment into more activity. Meredith lives in um, Charleston. So right now, there's not a lot of tourists. There's there's not a lot of people visiting. So it is a quieter environment as the weather starts improving, as it does here in the South. Literally, that is that rheostat. On pretty days, everyone will be riding their bikes and walking their dogs. So we talked about strategies to blur the lines between we're doing a training exercise and real life. So we, we talked about testing when you go outside. Is the dog good? Like at random times, can the dog take food? Can the dog play with a toy, whatever. So she knows how to assess that. And I said, and then you're going to start practicing when you see a cardinal or a white car or a mailbox with a two on it or whatever. You're going to pick random stuff in the environment that is not any of the things that have historically been a trigger to your dog, but those are going to be a trigger to you to practice randomly the strategies that you plan to use when you're out walking and we see another dog and you're concerned that your dog is going to struggle. I was just going to say that that's exactly what I tell clients as well. One of the things I want you to do is I want you to have environmental cues that tell you it's time to practice a certain behavior or get your dog to look at you or whatever, because you want the dog to associate the cue with looking at you, not what's going on. So your cue, whatever it may be, you know, look at me or whatever, you don't want it to be associated with something else that, that oh, when I hear that, there's something radically wrong going on that I should be paying attention to. Instead, it becomes uh, an ingrained behavior that happens. It's a behavior in response to a specific cue that you give the dog as opposed to a cue that something radical is happening in the environment. So I do the same thing. The other thing is, is it builds muscle memory in the client so that the more you practice this and become proficient at it, then it becomes more of a muscle memory and second nature to you to use it as a response when the situation arises. So I want you to build the muscle memory as well as the dog. Kind of like you learn to read the tea leaves about when your dog's going to melt down. You can read the tea leaves about when your dog's going to check in and you can decide, okay, what frequency of check-in do I need to be in good support of my dog, right? So I'm a little bit different in that I don't ever use a watch me cue. I think it's a terrible idea. Yeah, I don't use it either. I was just using it as an example of, of something right. you might no. want to teach and your dog. In my case, and what I teach clients, is when your dog checks in with you, they're saying, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good, right? So um, yesterday I had a, a, a new massage experience, and the practitioner was lovely about occasionally checking in with me and saying, are, are you okay? And I was like, yes, I'm good. Right. Cause it's, it was a really different kind of thing than I've ever had before. It was a very novel experience. And so, um, I appreciated that she just checked in to see how I was. I don't know her. She doesn't know me. 
we're just doing this stuff together that I've never done before. So I appreciated that check-in of like, are you okay? Yes. Right. So a consent test. So for me, if, if my dog, if the dog I'm walking or, or working with or playing with isn't consistently checking in, we got a bigger problem, right? The dog is closer to being over threshold. So in Meredith's case, Sweet Piper has about an every three second check-in as her kind of default. So it gives Meredith information. Meredith can decide, okay, um, do I want the the check-in to happen more frequently than that? If she does, she can shift the game she's playing to, because really training is games, to encourage a faster auto check-in. She also can change the frequency of the work she's doing for the hazard that or or the level of fatigue that Piper has, right? So, um, for example, Piper is not reactive to kids on bikes or rollerblades or any of that stuff. So Meredith could use those as good training exercises for and an establishment of what Piper looks like when she's relaxed and not concerned. And we can use that to bridge for the things that, that she has bigger feelings about. So we use all sorts of environmental triggers for the handler to cue the handler to do something in the absence of the specific trigger that we're concerned about. Because I don't want to accidentally sensitize handler or dog and... We need an emergency plan, so we've got to practice that randomly, too. And you're right. I have seen, and I understand why handlers are concerned about it, like, is is doing this going to actually cue my dog to scan the environment for what you're trying to get me to ignore? So by practicing it with stimuli that don't have meaning to the dog, even if your dog practices like whipping around going, hey, where's the thing you're trying to get me to ignore? The environment isn't reinforcing that because there isn't a dog. Right, right. And I, I, I love that. And I do something similar because I, because part of my objective here is I want everybody to be relaxed and happy and successful. It's not just the dog I'm concerned about being successful. I want the handler to be to feel successful like I've got this. And the more that they're confident and have practiced those skills that will reinforce the fact that they've got it will make it so much easier for them and their dog as life happens. So one of the things that I also do, too, is I try to break down what the stimuli is that causes the reactive behavior. Like, for example, I had a dog one time who was really reactive to bikes that moved right? The bike had to be moving. If the bike was stationary, it didn't matter. And it was especially reactive to recumbent bikes. So one of the things is Granville has an ice cream parlor that in the spring and summer, the entire like world descends upon, including many, many bikers. So one of the things that we would do is start working just around bikes that weren't moving or bikes that were being walked or, you know, it's or recumbent bikes, we allow him to sniff them. And so to try and just desensitize to the presence of bikes, although he wasn't as reactive to those, 
nonetheless, I wanted him to just get used to what bikes look like and bikes that are just moving very slowly and, and recumbent bikes and kids riding bikes and kids. So, you know, I picked apart the opponent, the components that got the dog and found which components were, if the kid, if, you know, if he was reactive to kids on bikes, but he wasn't reactive to kids or bikes separately, you can start to use those as cues to check in with you, even when you're being happy. So I think one of the things you can also do too is try to figure out what are the, maybe there's a particular part of the component that really gets to the dog. And so you can start to, to work towards conditioning the dog. When I see a bike, I look at my, my person, even if a bike is not reactive. So that's sort of the, the step. That's another step, I think, in the process. In addition to the, you know, the environmental cues for the owner to practice the reinforcement behavior of your dog being calm and happy. Well, and if you're going to fumble and make mistakes like we all do, make them where it doesn't matter, right? So I teach a lot of Kay Lawrence techniques. Um, I really like her style of both teaching and loving people as well as, as dogs. And so one of the things that she teaches is to, to have a rough draft of a cue, right? So I'm going to use the example of a sit. There's lots of other examples, but I'll, I'll give an example of this. So a dog can sit probably at least six ways, right? They can, they can do what's called a back sit where they move their rear feet their rear, they crunch their butt and they move their front feet back to accommodate the angle. That's a back sit. Front sit is that pretty AKC, right? Like obedience sit, which is where they plant their front feet and they tuck their fanny under. So they move their butt forward instead of moving their front back. That's two. They can roll on the left hip. They can roll on a right hip. There's two more. They can move from a down into a sit, which is a completely different behavior. And then they can do that sit like a, I don't know, a man in a beanbag eating Cheetos, right? Like the one where they they flip their butt upside down and like their legs are sticking out like a person. Like they almost sit above their tail with their butt like rolled under. So so th- I think that's six. I could be wrong. Somebody will count and. I'm sure I think it was six too. I was counting. I think it's six, right? So, so it appears that dogs attach the cue to the muscle movement, not the end position. So how very clever of you. So in theory, if I had a well-trained dog, which I don't, I have in the past. So there's hope for me. Me too. When I had a well-trained dog, If the dog was in that play bow position where their elbows were down, if I wanted that dog to move into a complete down, I should cue a sit. If sit means leave your front feet planted, crunch your hiney into position. Ah, how very clever. Because dogs don't attach it, supposedly, to the position. They attach it to the movement. I so, like that. I like. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but I think that's really intriguing. Because in addition to that, I have also taught dogs to stand in different ways. Right? right. I had to have a dog that when I was working with a, a dog that was being trained as a service dog, 
we had to have a down from a stand without a yeah. sit intermediately. And so, I mean, yeah. that's a completely different movement for a dog. And then I also had to teach a dog to stand up in place and not move yeah. forward. And that's completely right. different than getting up from a down or getting up from a sit. And we used for that, for that cue was stand up. So it was a, so he would arise differently. If I just said stand, he would stay there. If I said stand up, he would raise himself up from laying down into a stand. Right. So if I have a dog who, like most dogs, initially learned to back sit, if the family hasn't put it on a verbal cue yet, we're going to name that like cop a squat, park it, chill, something like that. We're not going to name that sit if they want to go on to do dog sports, because ideally the sit to that dog should mean a front sit. It's a more precise position for the dog, right? So um, it's why there's a difference between a down and a drop on recall. Anybody who does AKC obedience will know the differentiations between those. Now, again, the average family, it probably doesn't really matter. I don't particularly care whether, well, that's a lie. I do sometimes care which one, which one Dovey does because he's like three and a half miles long. And so if he back sits, he's pulling on my arm because he's sitting in Jackson County and I'm in Clark County. And that's a bit of a stretch. So because he's just such a long dog, right? He's so big for, for the terrier doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. So for me, Sometimes getting off into those technical weeds is just cumbersome, but sometimes it's magical too, right? To be able to cue the specific response you want and how not just where I want the dog to end up, but how I want the dog to get there. And sometimes it doesn't matter, but sometimes it does matter. So I could make a cogent argument that leash reactivity to a squirrel or to a dog or to kids on bikes is actually we've taught a sequence, right? From the dog's perspective, the child on the bike means yell your fool head off because obviously this is the invasion of the beaches of Normandy. Like this is a terrifying dragon. Everyone must be alerted to the problem. The dog is doing a community service. So we could I teach sequencing all day long. Like when I approach your crate, that means down. I don't stand there telling the dog to down. I just approach the crate when you're in a down. If you get up, I walk away from the crate. It's just cause and effect. The dog very quickly is like, oh, I better lay down or she forgets to let me out because she's obviously, you know, struggling with her mental health. So I... (laughs) I think Doby is just agreeing. That you're struggling with your mental health. I know that my dogs look at me sometimes like, are you serious? What what, what do you mean when um, I have to, uh, I, I have to sit in my crate? I have to sit at the door? I have to, you know, what the heck are you doing? So, um, yeah, no, I, I think Dobie was just adding his, his uh, he was just reinforcing the concept. Sorry, there was a delivery. They do not control FedEx, and they rang the doorbell. What? Which is, they rang the doorbell? How <laughs> dare they? What's hysterical is the Doberman, who I am desperately trying to keep quiet on a rainy day, 
did not say a peep. He's still invested in his um, beef cheek he's got in there. Um, it was the other three who were like, alert! <laughs> we're being invaded. Which, just as a complete aside, because, you know, we've derailed a couple of times here, so we're going to derail again. Uh, Brad sent me a meme on Facebook. It was three cute little terrier mixes sitting on their beds, their little soft beds, and it said, what was it? Um, Non-electric doorbell sitting on their chargers. Right. Yeah. Yes. Wireless charging of the dog. Yes, it was wireless doorbells sitting on their chargers, and the little dogs were sitting there just waiting. Okay, so back to sequencing. So my dogs have learned a doorbell means we all must yell really loudly and, and if possible, run to the front door, right? So in this sequence, my dogs did that. Um, Mr. The Terrier is tied to a chair because he takes while I'm on Zoom as an opportunity to climb into the HVAC system. So he is being physically prevented from doing that. Um, Jack is outside. So he barked through the window that there was someone at the front door because he was positive that none of the ingrates who were inside would actually take their job seriously. Marco was just randomly running around barking because everyone else was barking. He he didn't really notice that there was somebody at the front door, but you know, hey, we're all barking, so we must bark. Doberman totally clueless, chewing on his beef cheek. The FedEx guy is very safe. So um, that's a sequence, right? If that is a sequence that my dogs built on their own, right? Clever individuals, those dogs of yours, very clever. Yes, they're very clever. So doorbell equals lose your marbles and yell and run around, right? That's what everyone's supposed to do. So what was funny was while Julie was covering for me while I was on mute, because no one could, I couldn't even, I have no idea what she said. I'll have to listen to the podcast to hear it. Um, What was funny was Marco stopped like mid bark and turned and looked at me because he was like, you're not going to go to the. You're not going to go to the door? I was like, no, um, it's not that exciting, really, for me. Like, I don't know what they're delivering, but it's probably not that good. Um, and and then they, I was like, you you could be quiet. And they were like, really? I was like, yeah, yeah, we could just not bark and run around like hooligans, right? So I could build a sequence that doorbell equals go to your crate or doorbell equals go lay on my bed or doorbell equals come check in with mom or doorbell equals whatever. I just can't do it while I'm recording a podcast. Right. So I would classically condition doorbell makes chicken happen first. So I'm, I'm going to tell you how to do it for free. Cause I'm, I'm a giver. So doorbell chicken, doorbell chicken, doorbell chicken dogs can bark and swallow at the same time so the barking will go down automatically just doorbell chicken doorbell chicken doorbell chicken like it'll it'll end up resolving for the vast majority of dogs then if my long-term goal is to teach the dog when the doorbell rings go to your crate then i also have to have some sort of cue for go to the crate in our household that's bedtime so my dogs when we say it's bedtime they they go to their crates so 
I would stand at the crate, bedtime, throw chicken in the crate, bedtime, throw chicken in the crate. Until when I say bedtime, the dog joyfully runs into their crate. So I've desensitized the doorbell, right? Doorbell makes chicken happen instead of doorbell makes barking happen. I've already conditioned bedtime means go to your crate. So now I want to teach the dog that doorbell means bedtime, go to your crate, right? So I'm not telling the dog not to bark, by the way. I'm I'm giving them something different to do. They they might bark while they're running to their crate. That's okay. At least they're not running toward the door barking. Um, and they're not arguing with each other. They're headed to their crates. So then I use a sound, a sample sound off my phone, usually YouTube, to be doorbell sound effect. I say bedtime, pay in the crate. Doorbell sound effect, bedtime, pay in the crate. Until when the doorbell sound effect happens, the dog heads to the crate on their own. Now I know we've got this on the run. So now we have a behavior that's built. It's at the very beginning stages, but we are not ready to go live, right? It's very fragile. So I'm going to take two steps away from the crate. Doorbell sound effect, go to the crate, right? We're going to do thousands of repetitions. So now we're ready to start making it a broader understanding. The learning's fragile. We're going to work to strengthen it, right? You have to feed your dog anyway. You could totally do it with handfuls of dog food into the crate. Works out great. If you have a multiple dog household, one dog at a time, please, so that we don't have any conflicts. And then I'm going to start making it a little bit more random. So I might say, okay, I'm going to set a timer on my phone that's silent, that maybe just is like giving me a notification uh, at random times to practice our doorbell sounds on my phone and to reinforce the dog for going to their crate, helping them if they need more support. When we, because my goal is that we're not practicing it three times a week when FedEx, HelloFresh, or Amazon ring my doorbell. Instead, we want to practice it a bunch of times every day so the dog gets really good at it. So that it doesn't become cued to a certain time of the day. So that the dog, oh, it's noon. We must be doing it. I must go to my crate. There should be a doorbell sounding. So you want to do it at random times and, um, you know, throughout the day. And, you know, and, and maybe even, you know, having the doorbell, you know, they're in different rooms. So they're not always in the kitchen when this happens. So it may happen when you are in the office or it may happen when you are in your living yes. room. So you need to vary both time and location. So of where that, you are and where you are. Right. So that it becomes a genuine cue that means no matter where I am or who I'm with or what's going on, I run to my crate for chicken. Yes. And from the very first time I condition the doorbell making chicken happen or cheese or whatever I'm going to use or bedtime, meaning go to your crate, right? From the time I bridge that sequence, anytime it happens, even if it wasn't one that I planned, it was one that the universe gave me, I'm going to still do the repetitions. So if we were watching TV, which we don't do, but if we did and our dogs were reactive to a doorbell on the TV, then when there's a doorbell on TV, I might have to remind the dog bedtime and go pay them chicken in their crate and then come back to the show. 
the good news is you can almost always pause something. So I can use the real life examples that are not the actual doorbell there. It's, it's a virtual doorbell to reinforce practicing the behavior. So it's, what do we do when it's real? Well, once you've got it started, you treat every repetition like it's real. So if I have if I have a dog who's really struggling because maybe it's a neighbor kid and they're ringing the doorbell 37 times in a row to really, really get my attention, I'm just going to gently go get that dog and remind them where it's bedtime and put them in their crate before I answer the door because I don't want any more repetitions of the doorbell ringing to mean we run to the front door yelling. I want them ideally to end up in their crate and it can be ugly, but effective. I'm not going to be mean to them. They're not in big trouble. I'm just like, oh no, you forgot into your crate. You go, here's chicken. They still get rewarded even though they needed help. And then I go and deal with the, the door. So it's, it's that same thing. Like, what do you do when you're practicing that it's benign, that it's not a really a real life, like, oh my goodness, Amazon's at the front door. And then also how to bridge it to when it does really happen and it doesn't go according to plan. Like, what do we do? Well, we can still help the dog have good hygiene on the behavior, reinforce them, and then deal with the front door. Right. That's beautiful. One of the things that, that I did that was helpful, too, was I decided that, well, I changed my doorbell. I went from having one that went bing bong to one that chimed a little tune. And so it was nice because we could start with sort of a clean slate so that the doorbell meant, you know, look at me or it meant chicken. And since we switched over to a new doorbell, it was really nice because we, it, we didn't have an ingrained behavior barking at, at that sound. So I started with a brand new doorbell and trained to that. And that was just, that was helpful in sort of moving my training forward a little bit was just to change up what my actual doorbell sound was like. Well, and times you can do that. Like I know um, here with a lot of the college students, they get a chime when someone's at the gate with their apartment code that goes to their phone, right? So that they can approve the opening the gate uh, and the dogs become reactive to that sound because they, I mean, I think our dogs are bored a lot. So they, they draw a lot of assumptions from the environment. So if you can switch it, that's great. But eventually, like, you're going to have to sort it out too. Like you're going right, to, you're going right. to sort I'm, out. What but I'm just saying do. that sometimes if you, if you need, if you feel like it's so ingrained, it's so difficult to change. That might be a way to sort of jumpstart. Then let's change the doorbell and start Absolutely. with a clean sound. Yes. I think you're going to have a much quicker facilitation to yes. learning this behavior if you have a clean sound. Yes. And, and we want to, you know, we want to practice without it being a big, huge hazard, right? Like we, you using the example of like a dog being reactive to bikes well, then I'm not going to take them to the local bike shop and have them there for the start of the Twilight Criterion race. Like that would be an awful idea. So I don't want to throw them into the deep end of the pool. I want to start with 
it's really easy to make a different choice and to build the skill and to be successful. And when my dog gets it wrong, it was actually my fault. I was too close. I wasn't prepared enough. I wasn't on it. And I extend grace to myself and my dog. And we just go, wow, we messed that one up. (laughs) We're going to have to pull that apart and figure out a way to practice it better next time. So I don't stay stuck. Right. And, and And you will make mistakes and the dog will make mistakes. But it just think of it more as a is a learning opportunity and go, oh, okay. Well, that didn't work. So, you know, we'll, we'll now that I know better, I'll do better. Right. Some some dogs are gonna be worried about bikes, but not tricycles or not big wheels. Right. Right. So it's um you you'll figure it out. And the other thing is is if the worst thing in the world is your dog barks, that's not the worst thing in the world. The other thing I just wanted to reiterate, which we've talked about before we talked about in the last the last episode, was give yourself some grace and give yourself some time and be patient with yourself and your dog because positive reinforcement training is not an overnight solution. It takes some time no. to build this. And so to please have some patience with yourself. So, yeah. So just like learning new parenting techniques or new communication techniques with your partner or, or any family member, right? Like you're, you're learning a new skill too. And, and that means you're going to bobble it. That means there's going to be hiccups. There's going to be errors. Some of those errors, by the way, will be hysterical and awesome. And you'll decide to keep them. Yes. Right. Like I had someone who accidentally taught her dog that the doorbell meant dead dog. It's one of the funniest things you've ever seen in your life, right? The dog, somebody rings the doorbell and the dog keels over. <laughs> That's hysterical. Right? And it and it just happened. So she didn't realize it was happening. One of her roommates, it's a college student, one of her roommates was doing something that doorbell sounds were happening in the background while my customer was teaching her dog, dead dog. And and apparently the dog attached the sound of the doorbell as a cue on its own, like dogs and people do, right? So it she just kept it because it's very funny. He lays there in dead dog position, woofing very quietly. So he's, <laughs> he's like, woof, woof, woof. And so she, she's like, he's, he's yelling from the grave, right? Like, <laughs> he has something to say about it. But in quiet, it's a big golden doodle. So it made him really quiet, right? Because laying on his side, he's not articulated to really be loud with that woof. So if so, we're just saying, there's the door. There's the door. There's so the door. So she calls it setting him on mute. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I, I just muted the dog. I think that's hysterical. No, it is. It's really funny. Yeah. One time when we were we were practicing shaping, and I'm not brilliant at shaping. I'm really not. Um, there are people on this planet that can shape any behavior and, and bless them for doing it. That's That's not me. But I was working with Hudson, um, Emma's dog, her golden retriever, trying to get Hudson to go into a play bow, right? So I'm trying to shape this. Instead, what he did was he'd get down like 
this. And he'd look like a border collie. So we just kept it. And we'd say, Hudson, what's a border collie look like? And he'd go, and he looked just like a border collie. <laughs> so we were teaching him doggy imitations, but it was great. He did a he did a really good border collie. So well, think about where you can go with that. Like now we're going to make everybody mad, right? So so you could teach him a play snarl and say, "What does a chihuahua look like?" Right, <laughs> <laughs> growling. Um, yeah, you could like you could do all the things. You do all the things. It'd be very funny. Well, he so was, he would also do things like um, I've got a series of videos. Emma taught him to pet the puppy. So when I got Bingley. Um, he, he would, he would pat at him. So she put it on cue, pet the puppy. Right. So <laughs> there, so we said, so they'd sit down next to another and, um, she'd say, okay, Hudson, pet the puppy. And he'd go and he'd, he'd stroke the back of Bingley. But why he was teaching it at one point, he put his arm on Bingley. He was little and kind of came around the other. And the two of them fell over out of the, out of view of the camera. Cause he just pet the puppy right out of the picture. So then what we did was he used to be my classroom dog. I would take um, a dog into classrooms and do, you know, dog safety stuff. Hudson was so social that the kids would be sitting on the floor and he would just sort of walk his way around the room and introduce himself to everybody. And then he'd sit down next to one of the kids and he'd look at either side and they'd say hi. And then I'd say, Hudson, who's your buddy? And he'd put his paw around the kid's shoulder. And it was so sweet. And, you know, if, if the kid, and it was only kids who wanted to have it done. You know, I, I never forced a child who was afraid of dogs to do it. But sometimes I, you know, and the kids would be so delighted that sometimes the really shy kids would say, can I try? And I'd say, sure. And it was the beginning of them being able to appreciate and be patient with dogs and to, to enjoy them because Hudson was so very, very gentle. But he was a great dog and we miss him terribly. His Border Collie invitation was pretty special. He was just the most social dog and I, right. I thank Emma for that because she made sure that by the time he was 16 weeks of age, he had met 750 people. Wow. Yeah. She did a really good job. So, so one of the things I would say is anytime this, this all does tie back, like even these unintentional cues, right? It does all tie back to our original premise, talking about when you're trying to work on a behavior that maybe the dog has big feelings about or is struggling with, that we teach a new behavior, working with the dog's subthreshold, and then slowly increase the ask while building resilience, not breaking the dog. So the goal is not the dog goes over threshold and they have to recover. The goal is the dog goes, you know what? I'm pretty good at this. This, I can do this. I know how to do this. I got this. I'm a good dog. Like I have got this. Look, my mom's smiling at me. She's not growling at me. She's not telling me I'm a bad dog. She's not making that face that she makes when the kids are misbehaving or she smells poo. Like I'm a good dog. And you might in the process, if you find that you accidentally taught your dog to be hyper aware of cardinals, red birds, because that was the trigger that you were using for your behavior, you might need to get back in touch with your trainer, go back to the drawing board and go, okay, my arousal's too high. Right now I'm worried about, you know, the silly um, cardinals. And you didn't, you didn't make an, a, a mistake with the stimuli that you're most concerned about. Like I like pretests. I like rough drafts. So having a rough draft, 
of not only, okay, if we mess it up, we didn't screw up the big, the big challenge, but also what are we going to do when we get surprised? Cause the world's full of surprises. So I practice a runaway game that my dogs think is funny. Um, arguably it's not as fast as it used to be, but I will randomly go run away and we run off in some random direction, usually out of the street to avoid a invisible issue. Right. So the same thing, I might do it if I see a squirrel somewhere or I might be listening to a podcast and if a specific word gets said or a specific idea gets alluded to, I'm going to choose that as my target. So from the dog's perspective, it appears random, but it's not. It's not tied to, hey, I'm trying to convince you to ignore the scary kid on the bike. It is that your mom's a weirdo who randomly says run away and you go and run off into the grass and have a food scatter and cuddles and it just randomly happens. And yeah, she's a weirdo, but she's your weirdo. Right. And in conjunction with that, I will also have a, um, a, a cue that I teach my owners that is they're walking and scanning and seeing something coming up ahead that they're not prepared to handle, that the dog's not prepared to handle. We have a um, escape route cue and it might be there we go whoopsie or whoopsie oops or uh oh and the dog looks at them and we turn and we run away so that it becomes a cue of you know look at mom and we we can build on the you know the you know the runaway cue by adding something like uh oh and then i will sometimes just back up and the t- so as i'm backing up and the dog is turning and looking at me i'm feeding chicken as i'm watching the distraction right and the distraction goes away then it was like, okay, let's go. And we continue forward. So you, there's lots of things you can do that, that make it fun and engaging for your dog to be with you, but also help you to manage those things that will just, they come your way. They just pop up and there's not a whole lot you can do about that, except find a way that's, that's, that you're comfortable with and that your dog's comfortable with. Right. So we all practice fire drills, hoping and praying that there will never be a fire, right? We, we do all sorts of things that way, right? Like we practice what we would do if it was a problem and pray that there is never that problem. Like that, that's the point of insurance, right? We hope we never get in a car accident, but if we do, that's our recovery plan, right? So it's the same way in behavior. So for example, when new customers are oriented to training in the location where I train, we talk about what we do if there's a fire drill. We talk about what we do if there was some sort of other scary situation. They know what the plan is. We don't practice it. We don't beleaguer it. But we do talk about it so that if something were to happen, which I don't ever anticipate having happen, we have a plan and they know I've thought it through, right? When you get on a plane, they go through the safety thing for a reason. When you get on a cruise ship, the first whole half of the first day is going over all the safety stuff. There's a reason. There's a reason your kids practice fire drills in the school, on the bus, whatever. So I think with our dogs, we forget 
that we need to practice in the rough drafts way more, like way more fire drills, way fewer fires. So that's, I mean, that's the key. And, and what I often see is what I refer to as target fixation, which is the person forgets that intermediate step. And so they try to go from a completely sterile environment where the dog is a rock star and can only get it right to, and now we go to the farmer's market and it's all sideways and it's awful. And we're with a group of 37 people and, (laughs) and the dog's melting down and I can't get my kumquats and it's a bad day. So it's like, well, did you, (laughs) Like, sometimes I have to hold back saying, well, like, that there's a lot of distance between those two. Like, did you try, like, something halfway? So a a good way, there's a couple of good ways to, to score yourself on how you're doing on this. First, if your dog's response when seeing the kid on the bike or the other dog or a person or the squirrel or whatever, if you took the position of being the experiencer of that response, would you think to yourself like, wow, this is a safe and friendly and kind, gentle experience, or would that be off-putting to be on the receiving end of that? If it's off-putting, then you still have work to do before the dog can be put in that situation. And then additionally, if especially a new dog, I have a, I have a family right now who's doing this with a new dog that they love him and they're, and he's great and they're trying to make up for lost time. So they're taking him into situations that he is not at all prepared for. And he's a really nice dog. So they kind of assume he'll just sort it out. And I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) That's not how we do that. Right. We don't assume that everything's going to be awesome. What I want you to do is take an inventory. What would Carmichael need to be able to navigate to handle this situation? And what are we going to do if he fails? Like, does he have those skills already? Have you seen them demonstrated? Have you taught him? And if you haven't, even if you have, if if you have all those skills, great. You may proceed to step two. But then what are we going to do if the, if Carmichael just has a bad day? and it all goes sideways, then what are you going to do? Because if you're in one car with six other people and the other five people are really invested in whatever that activity is, and you have a dog who's losing his marbles, you can't escape. Like, you're not going to ditch the five people to take the dog home. So sometimes I see people pinch themselves that way, where they just get into the deep end of the pool when, you know, the dog still has a snorkel and a life jacket and swimmies on. It's like, he's not ready. Like, and, and I don't like learning through failure. I much prefer a model where we learn through success. Yes. Yes. I think we all would. Because the problem with learning through failure is sometimes we're not learning what we think we're learning and that we're learning behaviors that are not going to be functional for the dog. So yeah, I I agree. All right. Well, um, we hope we have not thoroughly confused all of you with this talk today, but I think the whole idea here is that you can help your dog. You can get the skills taught to your dog that you want to have taught 
Just be careful about overexposure, being patient, and having a sense of humor about this can really be helpful and that you might end up teaching some really amazing things in addition to what you want to teach. Yeah. And you may find that you have some triggers you didn't know about that maybe your dog gave you some. Because honestly, a dog who has big feelings about things will often result in a sensitivity for their people because it's uncomfortable for us too. I will also tell you, we all get barked at by dogs. Your dog is not the only one. They're also not the loudest one. And they are not a bad dog because they're barking. They're being a dog because they're barking. So that is part of why we have them, right? For goodness sakes, if something on the next street was on fire, you would want your dog to bark and not listen to you when you tell him to be quiet because you would need to know about a real hazard. And so extend the grace that you would want extended to you to your dog and to yourself because he's going to, your dog's going to get it wrong. Sometimes you're going to get it wrong. Sometimes our goal is just to make those errors really cost effective and inexpensive so that we're not, hopefully we're practicing. If we get it wrong, we're practicing getting it wrong in really small ways that are not a big deal. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much for, uh, joining us on Your Family Dog. If you have not already subscribed or followed us on your podcast app, please do that because that makes it easier for others to find us. If we are liked or followed, then others find it easier to find us as well. So with that, thanks, and we will see you next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.